Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and Judith Lucy is back today. Judith Lucy has a brand new book. It's called Turns Out I'm Fine and it's always a great pleasure to talk to uh, one of my absolute comedy heroes and one of the best people I know, Judith Lucy. I don't need to bang on about Jude because I have banged on about her in the two previous episodes she has been on this show. But all I will say is she's an Australian comedy legend and I'm sure her new book is going to be absolutely hilarious. So I highly recommend you check that out. Speaking of checking things out, thank you to everybody who's already come out to see me do Legal at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's so nice to be back on stage in Melbourne doing shows, something had been part of my life for 24 years and then the 25th year went away. So it is nice to uh, start a new streak in a new venue, the Arts Centre, doing an old show, Will Legal, about my uh, trip to Wagga Wagga. So if you've never seen that show and you'd like to see it, I am incredibly proud of that show and this will be the last time that I'll be doing it. So come out and see Will Legal during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And of course, I have added a show for those who have already seen Will Legal but would like to see me do something new this comedy festival on the final Saturday night of the festival, which I think is the 17th or something like that. I'll try to get my calendar up here as we're talking. On Saturday the 17th at 10.30 at night at the Comedy Theatre, I am doing a one-off show of What You're Talking About, Will, where I will talk to the crowd, I will create a show, I will talk about some of the things that happened in the last year I'm sure uh, so uh, this is my one brand new gig in fact most of it completely brand new in the moment on the night uh, so if you want to come out and see what you're talking about Will that will be either on sale by the time you're hearing this or uh, on sale in the next couple of days but I would get in quick if you want tickets because I think that they will probably go quite quickly seeing it's a one-off show uh, it'll be a party last Saturday night at the festival 10 30 at night show it's proper old school after two weeks at the arts, you know, the arts centre, which is a proper theatre. <laughs> It'll be nice to get back to a more rock and roll venue late at night, a few drinks and a made-up show with a uh, big full audience. So that will be Saturday the 17th at 10.30. You can also support the show on Patreon, of course, as usual, patreon.com slash philosophy. I have a bunch of other shows, Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup, and AFL adjacent podcasts. They can all be found at tofop.com. So go there and uh, follow the links to listen to some of those shows. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Judith Lucy. Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and it's a returning guest episode. Always a great pleasure to sit down with uh, my great friend. But this is how the show starts, so I always ask this question: Who are you? Uh, I am Funny Lady Judith Lucy Will Anderson. <laughs> As always, it is Funny Lady Judith Lucy. Uh, now let's get the plug out of the way because you know I love you and I want people to know that you've written Thank a book. You. And so, well, I think you've just done do it. That. I think you've really just covered it. I've written a book. Well, you've written a book. Um, what's it called? <laughs> it's called Turns Out I'm Fine. So I thought this was a good place to start because that's a very provocative title for Judith Lucy because turns out I'm fine really feels like you saying 
you know, I'm really going to have to go in a new direction for other comedy specials from now on. Like, you can't rule a line in you being fine. What are you going to mine for your comedic material going forward? I am a firm believer, Will Anderson, in that there's always something. And I sort of say this in the book, too. It's kind of like, yeah, well, I'm fine right now, but something else will fuck up. You know what I mean? You know, I talk about re- uh, I talk about meeting my, or not meeting, but finding out who my birth father is. Is, there's a whole new family there that, you know, is bound to be freaky or uh, traumatic in some way. I mean, I'm in my 50s now. Let's not rule out an illness. There's always something. And because I'm single, there's still every chance I'll be fucked over again by a man or a woman or a non-binary person. I mean, it's all still up for grabs, Will. I'm confident that the, uh, the fine part will possibly last for two, three months. Okay, so it turns out I'm temporarily fine would be a more accurate description but for the But not as catchy. Not as catchy. Um, <laughs> and it went through many different, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I burned through a few potential titles too. In fact, I was going to go with I'm a crazy cat lady without the cats for a while, but then that just turned into a sentence <laughs> in the book and I just went, you know, actually who inspired the title in a weird way was Colin Lane. Okay, why? Tell me how Colin Lane inspired the title. Because uh, Colin and I live in the same suburb. So for those of us who experience the horror of lockdown in Melbourne, uh, i.e. not Will Anderson, um, I uh, was going for walks with people. And one day Colin and I were going for a walk in the delightful St Kilda Botanical Gardens. And we were just talking about what a motherfucker of a year 2020 was. And then he just turned to me and he went... You actually seem to be doing really well with all of this. In fact, you seem tickety-boo. And I thought, bang, there's my opening paragraph for the introduction. Uh, so it is indeed your opening paragraph for the introduction. The the phrase tickety-boo was one that caught my attention early on because I was like, oh, I like tickety-boo. I it love like- tickety-boo. Yeah, it's it's a good expression that I had not heard in a long time. And I was like, oh, I'm good to see that you're bring about tickety-boo. I wonder where that came from. Well, thank Colin Lane. But uh, yes, so I, I, I went with that. Be- um, I should also be completely honest and say that when my editor, the magnificent Ben Ball, read the first draft, he did say to me, I'm slightly worried that people maybe about halfway through the book are going to be just too busy being concerned for your mental health that they may not even get to the end of the book. I think we somehow need to let people know that you wind up being okay. So that was another reason why I thought, turns out I'm fine would be a good idea. Right, stick in. There's fine coming. I promised you on the the front cover. Yeah, Uh, you have to wade through many chapters of shit, but at the very end... I'm kind of okay. Okay, so I'm interested in the book itself, the process of the book. Now, this might be an indelicate question, and feel free to lie, of course. Um, was the Always. Book some- was the book something that was already in the work uh, pre-COVID, or was the book a, you know, suddenly all my work's gone away, I need to do something COVID decision? And I think you know me well enough, Will, to know lying's not really my jam. So um, the truth is it was just a really, really happy coincidence because I had a huge touring year in 2019. So if COVID had happened that year, 
boy, would I have been screwed. <laughs> but no, the plan was always just to kick off 2020 with a few regionals. Um, I had another series of the weekly. And then 2020 was always going to be about writing writing a book. So that was just, well, was it lucky? Because let me tell you, writing a book makes you lose your mind anyway. And writing a book during lockdown, well, I actually know someone else who wrote a book during lockdown. And she said to me, I felt like someone had sucked the soul out of me. And of course, part of me thought, well, that's a bit dramatic, but I feel exactly the same way. So yeah, it was kind of lucky because I had stuff to do and was getting paid for it. But uh, it did mean that I spent a lot of lockdown hanging on by a thread, more than I would have if I hadn't been writing a book, I suspect. So it's because I know somebody who was meant to be writing a book during lockdown, but got to the soul-destroying bit of it and really has put that on the back burner to work on some other projects, even though they're not in a real lockdown. Anyway, uh, could be anyone I, which I totally get. Uh, yeah, well, but. you know, uh, uh, well, I I get that. Have you you haven't written a book before, have you? I've written a couple of like a barely. Well, I guess I wrote all the words in the book, so I suppose I'm downplaying it by saying I haven't written those books. But they were based on columns that I'd written for the. Oh, Sunday sorry, newspaper. of course, of course, so, yes, yes. But, so they're not real books; they're just compilations of things you've written for another purpose that they made into books. But I guess I wrote all the words that were in there. So no. Well, and of course you did, and my apologies for for you know being so obsessed with my own uh, you know incredible collection of literary terms that I um I I've just forgotten that other funny people have written books as well. But do you have any desire to you know do? An, an autobiographical bit of shit, or no? What? I don't think so. I don't think that I do. Like I, I think that there is so much in my life that I don't feel comfortable, or I don't think that it is for you know public dissection. That yes, I almost and we like, have discussed this a little in the past. Uh, yeah, and so I feel like picking out the stuff that is almost feel, and then just making it autobiographical, presenting it as if it is some sort of autobiographical yeah. thing seems a little false to me. So I'm working, I'm meant to be working on something that is a combination of autobiographical and something else mixed together so that it takes the pressure off it being a fully autobiographical project. But and how far into it did you get? Oh, not as far as I should have, Jude. Or not as far as they'd still like me to would be right. the answer to that question. What did you do in 2020? I know you've uh, relocated, but were you were you doing any work in Byron? What was Will Anderson's 2020? Okay, so well for me, like everything, yes. So I I had you know finished up at the radio in the hope that I was going to do a year of touring. So yeah, I now that three... was that was a bit of bad luck. <laughs> not not the greatest timing no. of all time. Uh, but then again, I have reflected on what it would have been like to be living in Melbourne, like having to broadcast on radio every day in the middle of that city that was going through something that no one at the centre of it could really understand. I think that would have been an incredibly challenging thing to do. So apart from the fact that I suddenly couldn't pay any of my bills, like I was still relieved to be out of that situation. But the whole, you know, when you've set yourself for like, I'm going to tour all year and then suddenly it just went, all went away. I had to have a little mourning period. I certainly had like a, a month or two where the idea of doing anything at all was completely, you know, foreign to me. Yeah. Like even it crossed my mind a few times the idea that I would never get to do it again. I don't know if you went to that place at any stage that perhaps 
you know, comedy as we knew it, like performing in front of people or at least full rooms of people with, you know, roofs on them might be a thing of the past. Did you ever have that moment? I did surprise myself. I had one, because I mean, I'm sure we've discussed this before, but I do have a bit of the old love-hate stand-up, you know, love-hate relationship with stand-up, especially after I've just done a lot of it, as I had in 2019. But I was, it was in the middle of the second lockdown, I was stacking my dishwasher, and I happened to be listening to a podcast by um, a wonderful woman called Maz, who's actually a stage manager at the Opera House, so you'd probably know her, Marion. Anyway, she... She has. Uh, she took that opportunity. She took her unemployment um, as an opportunity to finish off a podcast she'd been working on, which was talking to all sorts of um, different people with behind-the-scenes roles at the Opera House. Anyway, I was listening to it, and she was talking to a dramaturg, and they were talking about, well, basically the magic of live performance and how it's how it's different every night, and that's you know why you love it, and. Before I knew it, I was crying. And I really didn't see that coming. And I realised that the thought of never performing live again made me a little sad. So, it's yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think if you said to me, you can never do stand up again, it would really upset me. Absolutely. I went through a real period of, firstly, because I, I really hadn't had proper time off. I'd had a little bit of time off stand up in the last year, actually, previous, which was why it was so annoying that I couldn't do it again. I really fe- felt like I'd had my year of not doing a heap of stuff. And then suddenly I was going into another one of them. But because I've never had a break from the comedy festival, like it was my first festival off in 25 years. All it took was a global pandemic. And there was a part of me that felt very relieved by that, both physically and mentally. Suddenly my body readjusted to not sleeping in unfamiliar beds. I wasn't drinking at night, every night. I wasn't putting my body through and my mind through the stress of that adrenaline spike and then the come down afterwards and all those things that we just take as a natural part of what it is that we do. And I suddenly was was realizing that I just felt a lot better. Mm. I was a lot happier. I was a lot fresher. I was much more engaged in my friends and family and relationships and, you know, really connecting with my space, enjoying that. I was living in a new house. I was quite enjoying the house that I was living in. And there was a point where I was like easing into that with a real like idea of, oh, how could I just like sell up everything and work out how to just live this life full time? And there was a good two months where I think I was really repositioning even in my mind what other job could I do like yeah could I could I go back to journalism like you know could I write like a you know a a column in the echo the Byron Bay echo or something like that just a weekly column and do some public speaking around town you know maybe drop in and do some sets at the Brunswick Picture House when Ann Edmonds was in town or something yeah like I'd really position myself as being happy to just do 10 minutes opening for Edo Every summer has been my contribution. <laughs> but to, you know what? I get it. Scene. I totally get it because that's how I think every other week, generally. But going back to what you were saying about, I mean, the sentence that stayed with me from what you just said is, I was happier. I mean, has it made you think, how can I balance those two feelings? How can I balance the craziness of of stand-up being my main way of making a living? And I know you love doing stand-up in a way that I suspect I don't. But did it make you think, Jesus, maybe I've got to get, get a bit more balance happening in my life? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, as we all know, the financials of losing a year of work I often mean that the imperative is to not put things back in balance. To go back the other way, suddenly you're going to have to do a whole bunch of things that you would ordinarily say no to because even just the like you know dynamics of it you know at the moment when we're selling you know 60% rooms in places yeah. suddenly like half your profits are out the window for the same amount of work so there is that tendency to think oh i actually have to double down rather than look at it in a more balanced way if i'm coming back to this i took a long time to come back i i went nearly a year before i did a show like i people were well and truly back doing stuff before i dip my toe back in because I thought, well, if this is my substantial break from it, I am going to take the full break. I'm not going to rush back into it. I'll, I'll go back when I'm ready and I'm not going to do a new show this year. I decided, so that was my kind of kindness to myself. I yeah. was like, I'm going to do Will Legal again because partly just because people wanted to see that show again and I was, I'd made some changes and I wanted to do it again because I want to film it at some stage and, you know, it's like you want to have done it a whole bunch of times yeah. before you film it. But the other thing was I wanted something that if they cancelled it on the morning of it, I didn't go, I just went, fuck, I can't do that show tonight, I'll do it another time, as opposed to, fuck, I just spent six months working on this yeah. shit and now it's completely gone. So I did myself that kindness. I, you know, I really said, don't, I'm not going to take the time writing, you know, a brand new show. I'm just going to do some improv shows. I'm going to do Illegal. I'm going to get back into it that way and sort of set myself for... 2022 for a brand new show. No, I went through a real period where I seriously considered, could I see my life without it? And then got to the point out of the end of that where I realized, no, probably not. So what did that mean for the next, you know, 10 or 20 years? And what does it mean? Well, I'm not, I can't tell you like entirely that. I think what it does mean is that I probably have reassessed what, why I'm doing stand up again. Like, I think over the years, there's been constant reassessments. Like, I don't know if this is the same for you. I'd like your thoughts on this. But the reasons you start doing stand-up aren't necessarily the reasons you're still doing stand-up two years later or five years later or oh, ten years absolutely. later. absolutely. And thank Christ, if at 52, I was still doing stand-up as the <laughs> overwhelming wail for help <laughs> that it was when I was 20, when all I wanted, when I was just this bottomless well of insecurity and self-loathing that no amount of affirmation could ever fill. I mean, Christ, if I if I was still doing it for that, then I, I really would have to take a good, long, hard look at myself and fuck, maybe even write another book. And God knows I'm done with that for a while. So, yeah, absolutely. I think affirmation's interesting. So let's explore that just a second, because that's, okay. that's one of the things that I did not miss at all. So I, I never thought, I, I've like been actually talking about it a lot in the last few years, which is that I didn't feel like I was getting that sort of you know, false validation, that actual validation, whatever it is like that you used to get from being in front of a room full of people and making them laugh. But having yep. the time off, what I realized was I didn't miss that at all. Like if I could go another day, I quite like living an anonymous life at the best of times. If I could go the rest of my time without the validation, would not miss that. I'd be fine without that. Yeah. Oh, I'm completely with you. But so what do you get out of it? Why do you do it? Yeah. So, okay. Well, I think partly there's the practical reality that I had a good hard think about things, including trying to write this book. And I realized 
that with the small amount of actual skills that I have that are employable, it is the best use of my resources. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cruel but fair. I doubt that very much. Like, I have absolutely no doubt that if you did go, you know what, I'm going to write full time, you absolutely could do that. Uh, the other thing is I think that I really genuinely had a full appreciation for if you pick apart what we do, the show doesn't exist without the audience. We are playing oh. We are playing the audience. Like the show. No question. Your show you could go out and do to your non-existent cats. You could shout it out the, you know, the window. It's still the show. You, you've rehearsed it. You say it all in the order. The show actually exists on paper, but it doesn't exist actually unless you're doing it in front of an audience. And it's what you said that I missed. It's that thing of going out on stage and fully embracing the idea that what you're creating is a special experience for that group of people, that you're taking a whole bunch of strangers who might not in any other situation have anything in common and just for one night you're going to combine hopefully as many of them as possible as kind of reacting in the same way and being in sync and understanding something in the same way. That I missed. I think that's a cool thing to do as a job. Mm. It's a fun thing to do. And sometimes when you're in the middle of doing it too much, you just are getting through the show. Whereas what I would like to do coming back is have the time to enjoy and savour every show. You know, to really go, I'm doing a show tonight and it's going to be different and it's going to be weird and it's going to be unexpected. It's not going to be the same as the night before. And that is a good thing and an exciting thing. And riddle me this, Will Anderson, um, because it's something that pops into my mind on a reasonably regular basis. The late, great Linda Gibson used to say, comedy is a young person's game. Mm. And I do have moments where I find myself agreeing. Um, it's Okay, so why do you think that? Explore that a little bit more before I give you my answer. What, what is it that you feel about it that it is a young person's game? I mean, I suppose just even on a really basic level, like when I was in my 20s and going to work meant going to a pub and getting up on stage and then after my job, um, I got to just stay in the bar and get drunk with other comedians and sometimes members of the audience and sometimes sleep with other comedians. <laughs> I mean, that was not happening in my sandwich hand job, Will. Uh, and so the thought I that, bet it that is, was... Uh, well, I bet sandwich hands are also sleeping with other sandwich hands. I don't doubt that, but not this sandwich hand. I did not <laughs> often get lucky when I was working as a sandwich hand or a waitress. I mean, I hospitality was not good to me in that way. Whereas I think comedy, there were just, you know, comedians in a small room and it was the law of averages said that occasionally you were going to wind up sleeping with one of them. So it, that just really played in my favour. So, I mean, there's that. Obviously, you know, I uh, I am no longer doing that. I mean, I will do a show with Denise Scott. We might have a cheeky Pinot or two after the show and a lovely dinner somewhere in a nice restaurant. So that's obviously very different from uh, what I did for a good 15 years, which was just drink till I passed out, often in public. So that has certainly changed, and uh, and that's a little bit of a relief. 
But that's a change, isn't it? That's like, that doesn't disqualify you from being able to do great comedy. Like some might argue that it probably means that you can do better comedy because you're preparing yourself properly for shows. You're not worried about what your oh, peers look, are thinking. You're just worried yeah, about what that it is, is that, that you're is doing. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Uh I suppose on a really dull level, I find touring much more of a grind now than I used to. Um, And that's probably in there somewhere because I used to think of touring as a lot of fun. Like I used to love going to a different city just – and all I had to do was that show. That was all I had to do. I could get trashed afterwards. I could sleep all day if I wanted to. I could go and walk around this strange city. And that was really exciting. I remember when staying in hotels was just the best. And to anyone who doesn't get to do that as part of their job, I know what a wanker I sound like. But when you do it all the time, you just, yeah, you just kind of start missing your own bed and all that sort of stuff. So, and I mean, that's really boring, but that's in there. No, I do. I do think there's an interesting point in a comedian's life, because for the first bit of you starting out on the road, chances are the hotel room you're staying in is much yes. nicer than the home you live in. You probably live in some share house. You're not sleeping in a like a really comfortable bed. There's yep. no bar in your room. Like it's a much more enjoyable experience, but hopefully... And room service. Oh my God, room service. I found that thrilling for at least a decade. And there are the highest end of the entertainment spheres where you know it, your hotel room is commensurate to the size of your tour so if you're Elton John you're staying in some $20,000 a night hotel room that has a piano in it right okay there's that but then there's a an element of show business is where you become successful enough that your own house is actually nicer than a hotel room but you're not successful enough that you can stay in a hotel room that is nicer than your own house. And yeah. I think that... You're basically... You're looking at a whole world of Medinas right. slash Adinas. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're looking at. And I always used to say that I thought Medina slash Adina was Latin for just a bit crap. You know what I mean? Never terrible, never great, just, just fine. And especially the one in Sydney, which I'm sure we've all stayed at on, uh, on Crown Street, is it? Yeah, I think so. The Medina that I think is now in Adina. I mean, I just love the fact that because where that was is in Sydney, um, and it is, it's a great location. It's close to everything, blah, blah, blah. So they just didn't give a shit if anything fucked up in your room or, you know, you'd ring down, you'd say, well, my bed's exploded. And and they'd nod and go, okay, hang up and then do nothing about it. They simply didn't care. Yeah, they, they know you've made your choices. You're locked in. I uh, it is yes. Yeah, so I understand that the practicalities of touring, but comedy itself is comedy itself a young person's game. Like I would argue, and perhaps this is a self-serving argument, but I haven't always. I think that like a lot of my favourite comedians were great, like in their sort of you know forty to fifty-five, sixty was their best years because I feel like you're in that perfect spot where you are still able mostly to talk to the younger people who will come Mm. out to live comedy, but you also have lived long enough that you can connect with people who are, say, 10 years or, you know, 20 years older than you are. So you have that capacity to be, like, you know, really... like, And you just, like, don't care as much about what people think. You're not trying to please people in any way. I just think that there is... 
that t- it feels to me like the right time to be doing comedy. Mm, I, I have I have many thoughts. Um, I mean, I I would certainly go along with that in terms of I think I'm a much better performer and writer now than I was five years ago, ten years ago. Hope, hopefully, if you continue to work at your craft, basically, you're hopefully going to keep getting better at it. And the other thing that I value enormously is... Uh, knowing that a lot of my audience has grown with me. You know, I, I feel, and I hate it when people use the word privilege, but I'm about to jump in and use it. I do feel quite privileged that I know I've got people in my audience who maybe saw me in the 90s and are still coming to shows and that we have kind of... In the same way, because that's what I love about stand-up, I love the fact that it is a genuine relationship between you and the audience. And to add a layer on top of that, which is that you have also shared life experiences with each other, you know. I know there are people in my audience who were there when I talked about my dad dying and then they were there when my brother died. And, I mean, you know, that's a particularly maudlin um, timeline I've given you. But that also, I love that relationship. I love it that I can talk to people in the front row and they'll go, oh, don't you remember me? I was here 10 years ago or something. I love all of that. Um, Maybe part of the reason... And, you know, uh, and maybe as a female I feel it's a little more, but ageism is certainly in there. I would suggest not when it comes to stand-up, not when it comes to podcasts, not when it comes to writing a book, but, boy, I'm not getting too many TV and radio offers anymore. And I think that is something that also makes getting older difficult. I went to a lunch, and I dare say you have been invited to Jack Levi's Comedy Lunches. Um, a.k.a. Elliot Goblet. Never have, actually. Never ah, got an invite from That's probably uh, because largely Jack- you haven't been in Melbourne. But if you're in Melbourne, you and look, I've been invited to a few of them, and you go to them, Will, and there are an awful lot of familiar faces around that table. A lot of them aren't doing comedy anymore. And I know one of the reasons for that is they. Do, I, I have had conversations with some of those people who will also claim that, who will just go, I'm at a certain age now and people won't touch me with a barge pole. I'm not getting the corporate work I used to get. I'm not – I mean, I, I – I, I think even the last couple of TV things I've been on, I'm aware of the fact, because I know some people at the ABC, who didn't want me to get the job because they went, well, she's too old, can't we get a young woman on? I think there is something about the Australian entertainment industry, particularly in radio and television, and I have a pet theory about this that I may have bored you Bore with me previously, again. but I do think that... I think it has to do with us being a young, you know, the colonial you know, story of Australia, not the indigenous story of Australia, but the colonial story of Australia being quite young. And because we don't have history to celebrate and we're ashamed of our actual history, you know, that we have this, you know, cover up of what actually happened to this country that we celebrate new. Like we've always celebrated that we are young and plucky. We're young and free. We're this country that is, you know, it's all your fresh-faced home-and-away stars. And this is the brand of Australia. We can't compete on history. We can't compete on generations or, you know, buildings or traditions that have been around for you know, hundreds and thousands of years. And so we celebrate instead. We reject that as being important because we can't compete in that area. And the area we can compete in is new and fresh. And I think that that... Is a cultural thing about Australia, but it also is systematically through our entertainment industry. There is no doubt that we don't 
respect age in the way that other countries do when it comes to entertainment. And that does depress the hell out of me because I look at someone like Rod Quantock and I just go, if you were in America or England, you would just be worshipped as, you know, this incredible elder of our comedy scene in Australia and yet that is not the case. So I agree with you. I think we're pretty lousy like that. We're always looking for the... Well, and certainly the people making decisions seem to often be looking for the next new phase as opposed to going, oh, they've been around for a long time and might be quite good at what they do. Nah. And I am going to say I do think that is far, far worse for women. I am thrilled that Kitty Flanagan has just, you know, her show is about to start. But there are very few female stand-ups on national broadcaster, especially over a certain age. Yeah, I agree. And and look, and you know, as somebody who is, you know, part of the problem, you know, in regard as in not you yeah, know, necessarily Yeah, you straight white man. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I fooled around a little in my early days. I've I painted my fingernails. I've, I've tried. You did. Hats off. I'm, I'm from the country. Mm, I'm country mm, diversity. Mm. I'm the voice of regional Australia. <laughs> Plus, I got bad hips. That's like a almost a disability thing. It's fine, guys. Adam Hills has only got one foot. <laughs> Charlie's adopted. Come on, we've yeah, all got well, something I'm going on. I'm a fucking adopted. Where's yeah, that's my true. series? Charlie's Jewish now. He was willing to become Jewish. So hey, he listen. Be... I just had my ancestry.com <laughs> done. Twelve percent European Jew. Mazel oh, tov. Well, there you well, go. You just got to spell how you, you got to change how you spell Jude uh, at the start of your name. Yeah. Come now, back in. now you're talking. <laughs> at least SBS, surely. No, I understand it. You look at it and you think this is, in fact, one of the things that I worked on during um, the downtime was another project that people might see at some stage on the television. And one of the things that I was very conscious of was. You know, just me. And it's funny because it was never something that was said to me or told to me, but it was, this cannot be another project where, you know, you sit in you know, in the middle of this and this is, you know, like if, if you are going to be involved in this, you need to have other people involved in yeah. this also who do not look like you. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I think everybody has to wrestle with. But what we find more than anything is that you have to be – I have this conversation with Token. You might understand this. Um, so Token are our management. And, yes. Uh, it, it is a great honour to get asked to do the Melbourne Comedy Festival gala shows. We all grew up, you know, watching these sort of things on TV. The the first time you get to host a gala, the first time you get to appear on a gala, all these things are really great moments in a stand-up comedian's career. Sure. But I made a decision a few years ago that they were going to keep asking me. If I was doing the festival, they would ask me to do it. But I'd done it like 18 times or 19 times, like a bunch of times. And, you know, there's a really practical reality that if I do it, it just means that there's somebody else that they can't ask to do it. And I don't need to do it. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna make a conscious decision to just very respectfully, you know, say not this year, you know, and see how long I can say not this year, and this year after the pandemic token, we're very much like, we'd love some new tape of you. Is there any chance that you can go and do the gala? And I was pleased to say that I said no again and well you know, hope that somebody else gets that position. But I think it's very important that we, as an industry, have to always have that conversation too, that it isn't just the gatekeepers. Oh, there has to be absolutely. people within the industry 
who say, if there's going to be space for somebody else, I need to step aside from this space myself. Or if I'm going to get given an opportunity to have something, and Husey's great at this, I think. Like, Husey gets an opportunity to do Husey, you know, we have a problem on TV. But he knows to surround himself by an incredibly diverse group of other performers. For sure. I mean, I uh, I wish I could say that the reason I stopped doing the gala many years ago as well was to um, because I was graciously stepping aside. I simply refused to do it because I loathed doing it. Mm. And went. Uh, I mean, look, um, I have really dressed it up in me being a really gracious person, <laughs> but I didn't love doing it much either. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, certainly you do get to a point in your career, mercifully, where you don't need to do it, and so it obviously does make much more sense for younger people to do it. And that's how I felt about Upfront too, which is the ladies' night of the comedy festival. I thought, yeah, I, I, I don't need to do this, and I think it would be far far more beneficial for younger ladies to do it. So, yeah, and that's it. I mean, you do have to balance, of course, younger people, more diverse people, but it would be great if we could um, balance that with also looking after people who have paid their dues and been around for a long time, especially, I mean, and only if they're still doing good work. I don't think well, anyone's diversity's asking for got to include a, that. a free ride, right? but um, no. Oh, sorry. Not, um, yeah, of course. Like, I mean, of course, but that's what I mean. Like, it's got to be. You've got to be looking at all of that. You can't just be looking. When at... When I was feel- sa- saying free ride, I was very much referring to well, mm. me. I was very much referring to you know, <laughs> in terms of older comedians and saying it would be really nice if we could continue to support them as well. They were the people, as in me. I'm saying yeah. if we're still going doing good work please keep giving us jobs but you know I, I'm, I'm being it's, it's I'm, I guess I'm meaning to be more critical of the people who have had a good run I mean believe me I, I I've been in this ridiculous job now for 33 years and I have made a very healthy living out of it and I'm incredibly lucky uh, so yes always always looking out for stepping aside but as i say i wish we could balance that with or with both you know so how does that happen because i think that this is the time where there is potential for that to happen when when i look at the structure of our industry like when i started it really still felt like i was running away to join the circus mm. you know we're 5 6 years into the melbourne comedy festival at that stage it you know, the idea that Australian acts would ever be the highest selling acts at the festival was a foreign idea. It was always the international acts that come in and people would go and see. Like, it, it didn't feel like, obviously, there was an industry there already that people were working successfully in, but it didn't feel like what it feels like now, which is that, you know, people would actually go into comedy as something where you could have a secure career path. So, do we have an opportunity now for things to change? Is there any potential that it will change or is it going in the opposite direction, do you think? I have not got the slightest idea, especially because I will be very interested to see how COVID affects everything, you know? And I think what is heartbreaking is that you wonder about the, the people who were just starting out or who maybe were on that first rung. They've lost a year's work. They might be going, ugh, what's next? This seems very insecure. Even this year, if I get to do some live gigs, as you've already said, you know, they won't be to full houses. That 
bothers me a lot, actually. I, I don't think we really know. Um, I don't think we really know what our industry is going to look like five years from now. How do you think it will look? Like, do you have any ideas? Do you have any thoughts? I just don't think we know what the world is going to look like in five years. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, I mean, actually I actually drilling down into <laughs> what comedy is going to look like, it seems like that might be the second question to ask. Yeah, it is a good point, but we've got to find our own way through this as well as an industry. And possibly we have an opportunity to, you know, shake it out a little, have a think about what it is that we are trying to achieve, what our relationship with audiences is, what, you know, the comedy industry is. There's been a time of reckoning around, you know, behaviour in comedy and, you know, diversity in comedy and, you know, inappropriate behaviour towards women in comedy, like all these, you know, various touch points that where, you know, the underbelly of the industry has been at least revealed. Is there an opportunity for, you know, things to be re- rebuilt better than they were coming out? I guess, what's I mean, your optimism for the world coming out of what we've been through better than it was? And then, I guess, like comedy yeah. coming out better? Yeah, look, I, re- I mean, this may surprise some people, but I am actually <laughs> quite an optimistic person. And I do actually believe that people are inherently good. Call me crazy, yeah. but I really do believe that. And I, you know, it certainly does feel like we are at quite a significant point in history. And it does seem like it's an extraordinary opportunity. It, it, it does seem like off the back of this, we've had Black Lives Matter. Of course, we had Me Too not long before that. But I'm also still very aware of the fact that sometimes these things bubble up and then change is still very, very slow and very incremental. And, I mean, we're obviously seeing what's going on with our own fucking, you know, government and what's going on in Canberra. I mean, can we sort that shit out first, please? So, yes, and and again, COVID has made a lot of people go, well, look at how much we can change when we have to. Gee, I wonder if we could harness some of this for that nutty old climate change that's apparently a bit of a threat. I mean, are we going to do all of that or is business just going to essentially go back to being business as usual? I don't know. I mean, I believe that there is a very, very strong push for change coming from a lot of people, but that also means that... um, well, the old gatekeepers are not going to go quietly. And I think we saw that play out in American politics in particular. And we still are seeing that pl- play out. So what we will see in our lifetime, Will Anderson, I don't know. What I do absolutely believe is that if the world doesn't, you know, turn into a ball of fire, that change is just inevitable. I mean, it has to go that way, in my opinion. I mean, I really do feel that time is up for the, you know straight, white, cis men gatekeepers. I really do. I mean, it's just inevitable that that it's going to go that way. But uh, am I going to see it? I don't know. So talk me through your COVID experience because you were in the heart of at least the Australian experience of COVID. So 
what's your timeline? Like, where are you when you find out? When How serious did you take it at the start? I'm always interested in asking people this question because... Oh, I remember it all very clearly. And I'm about to kick off with something that I don't think could make me sound more middle class or middle-aged. <laughs> I uh, was really aware of it in a Pilates class. Um <laughs> I was literally in the middle of a Pilates class and one of the women turned to the group, I think there were three or four of us, and she just went, oh my God, have you seen what's happened in Sydney? There's been all this, you know, panic buying, there's no toilet paper. And I remember going, oh, thank heavens that would never happen in Melbourne. And then she went, because the Pilates class happens to be right next to a Coles, and she said, have you been to Coles? And I was like, oh, my God. So straight after the Pilates class, I went into Balaclava Coles, empty shelves, just all all the toilet paper gone, all the tissues gone, and I thought, oh, shit. So that was certainly the beginning of it, but I did think, yeah, but this is probably people panicking, panicking. and fair yeah. enough. It's, it's not going to be a thing. I think it was that following weekend that I, or it might have been the weekend after, that I had what turned out to be my last two gigs in regional New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And I was driving from the airport with um, my lovely station, uh, station stage manager, Nathan, who I'm sure you know. And as we were driving to wherever it was, I looked at my phone and I read him out a little email from Kath McCarthy, who was the head of live production at Token. And in that email, email, she told us that the comedy festival had been cancelled. And I think that was the moment when Nathan and I both went, fuck. And so that meant that I spent the weekend pilfering toilet paper from wherever we went. Uh, every theatre, well, I only had two shows, but I didn't steal it, actually. I did ask them because I'm too Catholic to steal it. Uh, I did, that's a lie, I did steal one roll from the hotel and one roll from the airport. But the other roles I, I, I was given by the, by the owners of the theatres. And then I came back. We still hadn't gone into lockdown, so can, but it was... Just quickly, so what was, yeah. what was your final gig? Because there was a time when, you know, it might have been your final ever gig. What was the final gig that you did? I can't remember where it was. No, I can't remember. I do remember that both the last shows were a lot of fun. Okay, good. And I also remember that the Token and myself, we were quite worried that people might not turn up, but yeah. most people did. I remember, so that was I remember great. on the last night of Adelaide because I was in Adelaide. And so the comedy. Oh, well, tell me comedy what that was like. Comedy festival. Oh, well, you'll love this. This is how quickly the world changes. I'm doing a Sunday afternoon gig at the Marion Hotel one week before the announcement of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And it's one of those rooms where there is a, like, there's a big sort of like row for people to come in down the middle of the room and then people are on either side. So when you stand on stage, you're actually just looking straight down the corridor, down the middle of the room. There is an entryway up the back. There is an entry door that literally brings you across the front of the stage to go up there. So as soon as the show starts, people normally only come in the back. But this guy comes in halfway through my set carrying five beers right across the front. And so I have to deal with that. I'm having a bit of fun with this guy. But, you know, yeah. whatever. I'm not, like, I'm not going too hard at this point. And then he starts walking back. And the further he walks back, 
I realize that he's like way up the back. He's come in completely the inappropriate door for where he was right, even sitting in the right. room. So I thought, this is a bit of fun. I'll follow him off stage. So I'm following him off stage. And then like he goes into his seats, which are like in the rows. So suddenly I am just climbing over people, like basically lap dancing in people's laps over to this guy. And then I make some joke about in the moment about us not caring about COVID because it was around by them, but no one was really too concerned. Yeah. And I lick my hand and pat his bald head. Like, I go to prison for that now. Yeah. I'd be on, like, the front of the page, like, front page of the newspaper as, like, a hate crime. That was, like, one week before it was cancelled. On the Friday Friday night... Will Super Spreader (laughs) Anderson. That's what it would have been. On the Friday night, it gets cancelled, the Melbourne Comedy Festival. We've still got two more nights of Adelaide Fringe. On the Sunday night, there's 60 people who haven't come. And I say to the audience, we will find out if they are the cowards or the sensible people. It turns out they were probably the sensible people. Oh, column A, column B. A bit of both. A bit of both. Yeah. But that was, yeah, that was my final show for almost a year. I did one last weekend, but uh, yeah, for almost a year. Yeah, same, same. The first first show back, uh, Scotty and I did a couple of shows at the Opera House. And that was, oh, what, about five weeks ago? And obviously um, not a bad venue when you haven't been performing for a while. And, of course, the really great thing about performing after uh, lockdown is people are so excited to be out of the fucking house that um, we were probably quite shit. But because we were all just so excited, it really didn't matter. Although what threw me was that because I've been doing Malthouse shows in Melbourne, so of course that's outdoors. Although that's been hilarious, dealing with things like wasps, for example. But in Sydney... Everyone had to wear a mask. <laughs> I just remember turning to Scotty and saying, well, this is great because if there's one thing I don't want to see, it's my audience smiling and laughing. So it does feel like that we're still doing a fair bit of negotiating with things. The other thing I will say about going into lockdown is it was only about a week after we went into lockdown that I had my birthday. And that, you know, so I was kind of one of the first people I knew who had mm-hmm. the, the birthday in lockdown and and wow for some reason that really took me down like i was actually much better in the second lockdown than i was in the first the first one i got really depressed i mean in the end my birthday really wasn't so bad i basically um i had one really nice bottle of champagne in the house that you know i'd been given as a gift Mm. for a benefit or something so i got stoned drank that and watched (laughs) flying high in many respects it was a pretty good day but the fact that i couldn't go out and see anyone i couldn't have a drink for some reason that Oh, oh, my birthday, that made a, a global pandemic really real. Uh, that uh, champagne thing I love because I, I, I took a break from drinking while we were doing Gruen and I've actually continued it. I've decided I've now, I now have an I only drink at work policy at the moment. So I'm still drinking <laughs> for shows, but for the rest of my life, I'm living clean and sober. And, I, and what's your thinking there? I'd like to hear more about this. Well... Basically because it was too easy to drink, you know, when we were in lockdown. You know, you never had anything that you had to be right for. And so I was like, this isn't great. And particularly during, well, during Gruen, it was really 
that you know, I know I'm the key person in that arrangement, and everybody is yep. going to so much effort. We're doing a show without an audience. Russell's in a studio in Melbourne. Everybody's you know got these you know we've got a you know, officer looking after everyone's temperatures. Everyone's trying to live you know these lives so that the show can go on. And I was really, I basically just went into a ten week complete lockdown because I just did yep. not want to be that person who, in some way, buggered it up for everybody else. And I thought. Well, I don't want to. I want to be at my best health. So I'm going to not drink during. But as you would know, often you know when you launch a show, or I hosted the ABC upfronts for them. Like when you do someone a favour, they will give you a bottle of champagne. So during that period of time, I did five different favours, but I wasn't drinking. And so I have this house that a friend of ours was staying in in Sydney. But when he got to the house, all that was in the fridge was like five bottles of really good champagne. And he was like, what sort of life are you living? <laughs> like, well, that's the only thing in your fridge. And I was like, no, no, just a clean life. A lot of favours. Uh, so what does that look like? You have your birthday. You know, it's uh, what does that actually? Yeah, found an old bottle of Amel wisely oh threw God. that out <laughs> instead of actually using it. Oh, my God. Um, and, but oh, I can honestly say, I mean, I know I've said it as a joke as well, but I really did spend, I reckon, those first three or four weeks simply getting hammered and masturbating. That was all I did. And then I went... I reckon I've got to get a bit of a handle on this. So then I would do the thing that then I'd have two or three weeks where I didn't drink at all. And then, yeah, I w it was constantly seesawing. Also having – I mean, I worked the whole way through. So that was also something that helped, you know, keep me a bit nice, which was good. Okay. So that you talk about the last – the time you found out – um, did you do anything? Because you've been like concentrating on your health. Like you said, you found out at a Pilates class. What was your health journey like during that time? Did you find it easy to keep on top of all that stuff? Was that stuff actually very helpful to you during that time? Did you slack off on some of it? What What was your relationship with, you know, continuing to sort of exercise and, you know, do Pilates and yoga and these sort of things? Uh, Pilates I was actually still doing. I was still remaining uh, very middle class and I uh, so was doing the odd Zoom mat class. Uh, I did. I kept doing yoga every day because that always keeps me sane. Uh, unfortunately, about three or four, about the middle of the year, uh, I think largely due to stress, typing and wear and tear, both my shoulders completely went on me. Uh, and in fact, I'm having an operation on the left one in a couple of weeks. So that has meant that there is so much stuff I can't do, especially when it comes to yoga. So that was a bit of an issue. Uh, gosh, it's meant that my I have legs of steel now, Will Anderson, because I can really only exercise from the hips down. So that was a bit of an issue. But yeah, what do you do? Yeah, uh, those uh, things like drinking and, you know, uh, those other ways that people get through these times, were they intensified? Um, as I say, I reckon the first lockdown, absolutely. I really did get hammered a lot, but then I, I started to cut down mainly because it was also just depressing the fuck out of me because – 
I can honestly say that, you know, for quite a long time now, I'm I'm still up for getting trashed with other people, but, like, I hardly ever do that on my own anymore and I hardly ever drink on my own anymore. So I did re-embrace that old friend for a while <laughs> and then went, actually, maybe we need yeah. to go back to being acquaintances because, uh, yeah, you know what? If it made me feel great, I'd keep doing it. But waking up with a, a hangover and feeling depressed and paranoid and not having much interaction with other people, it's not a good combination. So thankfully, I, I finally worked that out. I did, and I know a lot of people who will relate to this, for me, the most difficult thing was being single and living on my own and not being allowed to see even one friend for a long time, you know, unless you went for a walk. Um, that was really difficult. But, you know, having said that, I also know, of course, it was incredibly difficult for people with families or in share houses or in toxic relationships, how everyone was dealing with their own shit. In fact, a married friend of mine said, whatever your idea, whatever your own personal hell is, lockdown just accentuates it. So for her, it was like she loves her kid to death. But for her, she said, it's not having any escape from that. And for me, it was not having any escape from me. Yeah, I think um, Amy certainly has got used to the idea that I'm away a lot. And ah. this was the first time for a very long time that we had spent, in fact, probably the first time ever in the almost 20 years that we've known each other, that we would have spent that much time together in a row. And it was mostly just us. We were living in an isolated area. And yep. for some of it, we were really strict about, you know, who we were seeing. And there was a point, and I think you'll enjoy this, Judith, where one night I was telling her about some aspect of my day that she found incredibly boring. And she said, um, it's fine if you keep talking, but if it's okay with you, I'm going to stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I admire her candor, Will, because most people would have just continued to nod and smile and yet mentally have totally left the room. Exactly. I mean, I'm doing, like, I'm doing that now. I haven't yeah. heard anything you've said for a good 15, 20 minutes. So she's just a lot more polite than I am. That is my ultimate fear. Uh, so, all right. So, um, yes, it, it, it made it hard for everybody, absolutely. But, you know, it's good to acknowledge what other people have gone through, but it's also good to acknowledge what you are personally going through as well because just because other people had it worse doesn't mean that what you went through no, is something look, that you need to do. Absolutely. But, you know, the fact that I had a nice flat and had some money coming in, I thought, made me extremely fortunate. But what I have found fascinating about all of it is the stuff we were touching on earlier, which is, I think, you know, even people outside of comedy have been reevaluating their lives. I, I think that's really fascinating. And in terms of uh, what you were asking about what the world is going to look like, I think, again, that's one reason we won't know for a while. But I think it has made a lot of people just go, shit, maybe I wasn't that happy. Maybe maybe I do need to really shift my priorities. I mean, it, and it can happen at any stage. I have a friend who does very well at their job, you know, very successful person, but they said they have this very nice home that they've never appreciated until this time. You know, like they, that's a very privileged experience, but even they were going, well, why am I working so hard to not spend any time at this place that I'm spending all my money on? And I thought... So even, you know, at that end of the spectrum, there are people reevaluating their relationship with, you know, what they do and what they have. I think it's incredibly fascinating. I am, 
I am uh, yeah cautiously optimistic that perhaps we come out of this a little better than we went into it. But yes, we'll, that we'll, is that is yeah. certainly my my hope as well. Yeah, it is yet to be seen. I suppose I I want to ask you a question. I've just started asking this recently. It was uh, actually. Uh, came up in one of the podcasts and people asked me, you know, about my philosophies when I, you know, asked people about theirs. And one of them that I could point to was I've always had this, I'm not one for big inspirational quotes or anything like that, but I've always had on my desk this little, you know, uh, kind of metal bar and it's got engraved in it the question, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? So what thing would you try to do if you knew there was no possibility of failing at it? So I'm going to ask you that question, Judith Lucy. If if success was guaranteed, what would you attempt to do? Fly. Like physically fly? Like physically. If I could just jump off a building <laughs> and fly, I reckon that would be great. I mean, again, it comes up a lot. I think it was uh, Bill Hicks who who originally made the observation, if you are going to... Uh, learn how to fly or think that you know how to fly, you don't need to start on top of a building. Just start on the ground and start flying. Yeah, that's that true too. That. that is true. <laughs> um, it just seems more spectacular. The idea of jumping on, you know, just actually like me now, just kind of going up, just doesn't seem to pack the same punch. But um, what, what I love it, that you think that flying itself wouldn't be impressive enough to people. Nah. You also have to have No, I, I, want, I want some some kind of Wonder Woman thing going on where I just really get to, you know, do that gesture and just soar off something. But what what would you do? I suspect you're looking for a slightly different answer than the one I've no, given I'm you. No, I'm happy but... with fly. I would like to know why fly. Like, what what is it about flying that you find so enticing? I just think it would be the best thing in the world, I've, I've always been jealous of people who fly in their dreams. I've never, mm. I've never flown. I love being in a plane. I love being in a tiny plane. I love, you know, I love all the show rides that I wasn't allowed to go on as a child. There's just something about that kind of freedom that I just think would be amazing. And, you know, you get to hang out in trees a lot. And I I, I think this is definitely something that's happened to me since I've gotten a bit older. I just think trees are the best. So if I could maybe... Look, I guess really I just want to be a bird. A bird, that's what I'm hearing. (laughs) That's that's my dream, Will Anderson. I'd like to be a crow or a magpie. Who doesn't love a magpie? There you go. Uh, I didn't think this was the direction this interview was going to go in, Will, but here we are. Judith Magpie Lucy, that's me. I mean, I like this a lot. So what is it about trees that you find so interesting? Because I'm living now uh, on, uh, you know, uh, not not really a farm, you know, but it's it's big enough that we have a couple of horses in the paddock and there's a little rainforest on the property. Oh, nice. So there's, you know, a whole bunch of trees that technically are on, you know, a property that I own. You know, it's not that they – they pretty much look after themselves, Jude. Yeah. It's not like I really need to do anything. And that's uh, why they're ideal for me <laughs> because they require nothing from me, Will. Right. right. Um, look, it's been a slow burn with me and trees. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, look, a fair bit of this is in the book where I've, you know, at around 50 finally went, wow, nature, yeah. 
really rocks. <laughs> how, how have I not noticed that? Or how come I did notice that up until about the age of nine? And then I just started watching television and forgot about <laughs> nature for about 40 years. And now I've woken up and gone, yeah, it's the best. So that was in there. I started volunteering at my local eco centre, doing some gardening, um, which... Again, I never thought I would do. Friends were like, you are what? And I was like, I'm weeding. I'm planting seeds. I'm really enjoying it. Um, (laughs) I also read, have you read The Overstory by Richard Powers? No, but is this about how all the trees communicate with each other? Is um, that what, is, is I it mean, that no. it's, well, there is certainly a bit of that in there, but it's, um, mm. it's, Look, it's it's a terrific book and it does kind of I mean it's sort of like he makes you love trees by stealth basically because it kind of begins with all these human characters but as you get into right. the book you realize that the heroes are the trees and that humans are just fucked. And if you listen to him being interviewed because I've become quite obsessed with with him, it's been his journey. Like he actually wrote the book and wound up moving from one side of America to the other so that he now lives in some credible old growth forest. Like it's changed his life. Um, as So that was in there. Volunteering at my eco centre was in there as sort of um, an extension of volunteering at the eco centre. I then, part of the podcast that I did was actually looking at grassroots movements and doing more about climate change and Deb Hunton, who is the woman who organises the volunteers at the Eco Centre, also runs these Tune Into Nature experiences. So I did one of those for the podcast where I essentially um, went on a date with a tree. Like, she got me to choose one in the park that I felt a particular connection to. I had to approach the tree. I had to ask the tree's permission to do things like touch its bark and smell its leaves. And you you're laughing in my face, Will Anderson, and I don't no, blame I'm de- you. I'm delighted by this. I, I just but think I... it's sad that women tree relationships have more consensual, uh, more consensual nature to them than most fucking male female. I know it's and quite honestly, um, I am now going steady with that tree. I really am, you know, because it was. Well, it, I mean, it was insane. Like at one point. Um, Deb was kind of getting me to, you know, think about all the life the tree supported below the ground. And anyway, one minute I was smiling and the next minute I nearly burst into tears because it was just this this idea of being present with this living thing that up until that time I had given so little thought to. So I have just reached a point now where I just think trees rock. And if I'm like in a train or a tram, trees are what I look at. Yeah, so I have a, a – we were caught in a storm here October 31st last year. There was a hailstorm, like a massive hailstorm, and, uh, you know, ripped off the roof of the house, you know, that sort oh, of thing. Oh, wow, but okay. also destroyed the garden. And, um, like, it, the place that we live at has an incredible garden, and it was really – looked like someone had gone through it with a machete. And so I spent probably – more time gardening in the last year that I'd spent in the previous, you know, 46 years. And And how did you find it? Did you enjoy it? Well, here's the most amazing thing. Because initially it was just cleaning stuff out. So you just kind of have to work out what everything is so that you know what you can get rid of, what you can cut back, what will regrow, those sort of things. So you have to learn on that basic level. 
But then where, where I'm living, it's just been nothing but rain and sunshine for the last three months. And so it's been this perfect greenhouse. So we've had like a year's worth of growth in three months. And every day I will go out and I will see these things that were, I saw completely cut down in one shape, like, you know, grow and then bloom and then like blossom and flowers and things you can eat and things that it's mind-blowing. Isn't that cool? I think that's it, great. Yeah, I, I understand the fascination. There is a part of me that every day will just walk around and just think, oh, I didn't even know you could do that. Like every day, you know, some tree or something's got a new trick and you're like, this is incredible. So, no, I get that. I get the connection with the nature thing. I think that's there is something in that. And that is why I'm selling $10,000 Earth Connection sand that you can buy. <laughs> Philosophy Earth Connection sand. But, you know, and obviously that's something that the pandemic um, has done for a lot of people too, has made them go, do I want to live in the city? I should be growing my own vegetables and growing, you know, making my own bread and why am I not doing more in the community? And I actually think that's all incredibly healthy too, that people are looking at all of that stuff. And I, God knows, I want to have more nature in my life. I actually want to get a place where I've got a garden. Denise Scott has been across this for years. She's been a big gardener and has magnificent gardens. And, you know, she would talk about it and I would just roll my eyes and think, <laughs> okay, lady, whatever. I guess I guess I'll just have lost the will to live by the time I take up gardening. And yet here I am going, actually, I get it now. Uh, so it's good that you love trees so much that you've written a book that you hope will sell lots of copies so they can you oh, know, cut down some fuck trees. fuck off, and- Will. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Nice undercut. Jeez. Okay, but talk to me about the book. How do you write a book? What's your, like, process of writing a book? Are you a person who sets yourself a certain amount of words a day that you're going to write? Yep, yep. I look at that word count every 40 seconds. Um, I am... <laughs> I think, okay, so is that 200? Is that 300? Oh, and I, um, I, I do... How many are you trying to do in a session? A thousand, a thousand. Yeah. But um, I absolutely don't care if I write crap. I, but I'm like this when I write a show too. Like I know people who agonise over every syllable and I'm just like, fill the page, fill the page, fill the page and then go back and make it less shit. So, yeah, I am definitely a person. I get up in the morning, I do a bit of yoga, I write crap for a few hours and then I try and polish the turd the following day is, is, is pretty much my approach. What, what, do you, and- what do you like when you write? Are you disciplined? Oh. I wish I was more disciplined. I No, I mean, my, the best way to get me to write on something is to have something else that I should be writing on. That's, ah, that's okay. what I've really found. <laughs> my interest in working on something is really heightened by the fact that it's distracting me from the thing that I actually should be working on. Wow, okay. So this book that I have been struggling with this year has been incredibly good for everything else I do creatively. Well, in, in, you know? so, in some ways, you're winning. You might not be winning with that book, but, you know, you're winning at other things. Now, I have always um, largely been driven by anxiety and panic. So I am one of those people that if I don't jump in and do the work, I will just feel so much worse. If Honestly, if procrastinating 
worked for me, I would be doing it. But it, it, it simply doesn't. So, no, I just get up, work m- most days and... Um, and then I come up with something that's a bit shit and I spend the next few months trying to make it better. But it's and a really, you, can I say, I, 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 I mean, maybe you say this after everything you've just done. But no, actually, I think I've done it enough times that I can confidently say I think writing a book is one of the most difficult things you can do creatively, in my experience. And I, I, I literally am gobsmacked by the thought of doing nothing else. You know, proper authors who do nothing but write, I, I take my hat, my hair, my head off to you because <laughs> I, I don't know how you're not just frothing at the mouth and walking around wearing a tea cosy instead of underpants because I, I just think it really, it really tests your mental strength. Yeah, there is something I found because the subject matter of my book has to do with, um, you know, a view of the world, you know, or people's view of the world. And um, trying to do that in the middle of what we were going through, I found incredibly hard to do because I just could not get a handle on it. It's part of the reason that I'm not doing a show, a new show this year, because I don't know what I've got to say yet. Yeah. Because I still yeah. feel like we're in the middle of it. How can I have an opinion on what's going on when, yes. you know, I still feel like we're in such a constant state of flux and everybody's had such different experiences of what just happened that we haven't really settled on what to talk about next. So that, no, I I have found it incredibly challenging in that regard to, you know, try to funnel what I think about life and the world through. Anyway, you've got a book and that's what we're here to talk about. I've got about, a book. Not my book. Uh, it is uh, it is out by the time people hear this, or we'll launch this for people to you know. April sixth, I believe. April the sixth, so probably you know today or a few days from now or yesterday, <laughs> somewhere around there. Last was year was when it happened. I don't really know when you're listening to this. You could be listening to this well in the future. Uh, Judith might be terrible again by now. Yeah, I might. Uh, the, um, the I whole, might whole be dead. Might be I, who, who can say? It might, it might, might be a brilliant historical document. It could be. It could. Sales might have gone through the roof because it's the last thing I ever did. This could be the last interview I ever do, Will. Oh, well, if this no is one the last knows. interview, well, if it is the last interview you ever do, what is it that has not been said yet? What would you like to say that, you know, you've had not had the opportunity to say? What do you need to share nothing, with people? Nothing, nothing. Honestly, <laughs> I, um, whenever someone says to me at the, at the end of an interview, is there anything else you'd like to add? No. <laughs> No, actually. If you haven't thought to ask me, then I'm not helping you. I um, wasn't thinking in no, that sense. I no, was thinking and I more actually, in the sense I didn't that, mean that, Will. I didn't mean that. I meant your stock standard comedy interview. No, I, I know. And I've, I've still got a, the question about what it's like to be a woman in comedy. Go- so oh, thank finished. God. Because <laughs> if I don't get asked that, well, what's the point? So are you funny all the time? All anyway, the time. You're the class clown, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where do you get your ideas from? And anyway, I am and I am a sad clown. So yeah. <laughs> 
I, I don't think there is much else to say about the book. You know, there's something for no, everyone I, in I there. I don't want that. I don't want. I don't want to hear about the book. Good. This great. Is, this is. This is as, like if these were your final words. Yep. What would you want them to be? I like. Obviously, this is not going to happen. But if in some way this did happen, if this was literally the last interview, and everyone went back and was like, "What were Judith's last words in an interview?" What would you like those last words to be? Well. <laughs> I know this sounds like, um, well, I'm, I mean, I know a lot of people listening aren't really going to believe what I'm about to say, but, well, I'm, I'm going to say it, and I'm glad you're the person that I get to say it to. Uh, we've all been through a pretty tumultuous time. I've had a lot of time to think. I mean, doing the book actually forced me to think, well, frankly, a lot more than I wanted to or was generally capable of doing. But I can honestly say that having written the book and coming through 2020, I think I've realised why we're all here. And that reason is, well, I think time's up, Will. I've got to go. (laughs) Derek, I think that's the end of it. You must have seen that coming. I did, but I was yeah. enjoying it regardless. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Sometimes you can just lean into the journey. It's yeah. safe, safe in the knowledge that the captain's got this. Uh, the captain, <laughs> the captain will lead you to an enormous anticlimax, and everyone will enjoy it. Uh, it's a beautiful way to end. It's always so nice to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time today, Judith. Thank you so much, Will Anderson. 